This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday program. We end another week. Boy, does time ever fly. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and I'm really grateful that you take the time to tune in every weekday at 4 o'clock. I am from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and the whole purpose of this program is to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, whatever's on your heart or mind. Maybe it's something that you're going through or something that you don't understand. We'll do the best that we can to answer those questions. Here are our phone numbers, 340-9585 for your live calls. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free mobile app. Uh, If you're driving in your car, the safest way for you to call is to use the KSLR free mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, Friday, it means that we're all on the verge of another weekend, another opportunity to gather with God's people, to serve Him, to serve the people. Uh, And we do that with cheerful and grateful hearts. Wherever you go to church on Sunday, or maybe some of you going on the nights. We have church here tonight at, at uh, 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel. So we've got one Friday service and three Sunday services. Many of you have Saturday evening services. Wherever you go, just be sure that you're available to be used by the Lord. Ask Him to prepare your heart and then prepare some of those divine appointments where you can be used to be His heart, to be His arms. Maybe somebody just needs to be hugged. You can be that man or that woman. And in the process, serve the Lord. And that's what it means to be together with the people of God. So um, tonight we're going to be doing Acts chapter 5 here at Calvary Chapel. I am going to finish Romans chapter 9 uh, this Sunday uh, at church. So um, again, wherever you go, may the Lord bless you and um, may he use you to minister to others. A uh, quick reminder, and I'll talk more about this next week. In fact, we're going to have Pastor Juan Ortiz who is our Joy of Jesus pastor on the radio program on Monday afternoon. Um, we are seven days in a wake-up, I was just told by my producer, until Joy of Jesus, Saturday, October the 28th, at Travis Park in downtown San Antonio from 11 to 3. Uh, we'll be there with all kinds of things going on. We'd love to meet you. Just come by and say hello. Um, maybe the Lord can use you to talk to people. Who knows? But... Uh, It's going to be a great, great afternoon. The weather forecasts are pretty good up to now and long-range forecasts, so we're anxious to see exactly what the Lord's going to do. So 
Saturday, October the 28th from 11 to 3 at Travis Park in downtown San Antonio. Okay, let's get right to questions for those of you who have been sending some questions in. The first one is from our email inbox from Nacho. He says, Pastor Ron, how can Satan physically stop us from doing things? Uh, his reference is 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Does he do it directly or indirectly? Nacho, in that particular case, uh, we're not given any details. Now, here's one of the things that we know, that Paul was um, uh, often a victim of a messenger from Satan who'd buffeted him in the flesh. We know that from uh, his letters to the Corinthians. And maybe it was a, a, a physical um, affliction that rendered Paul uh, unable um, to, um, to, to, to answer the bell. Um, uh, more likely than that, because we know what happened in Thessalon- in Thessalonia, uh, um, Thessalonica, I should say. Um, we know what happened. What happened was um, Satan stirred up the crowd, and the crowd got so extreme that they prevented him, and, and Paul had to, to get out of town uh, very, very quickly. So um, it, most of the time when Satan stops us, he stops us physically or um, um, or, or through circumstances. But remember, in the physical realm, Satan can't touch you without the express permission of God, and God's simply not in the habit of giving the devil the opportunity to, to afflict us physically. So that is almost never the case. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting, Nacho, about your question is that this is the only time that Paul uh, is, talks about Satan physically or stopping them from 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 completing the ministry. Uh, but but there's at least three occasions when he says he wanted to go somewhere and the Holy Spirit stopped him. Three times when Paul's heart was to go into Asia to preach the gospel where the gospel had never been preached before. He was excited about that opportunity. And three times the Holy Spirit said no. Imagine how discouraging that was. You know, when we have a desire in our heart to do something and Paul... He just wanted to share the gospel wherever he possibly could. Um, But in his particular case, the timing wasn't right. The timing wasn't yet right. You know, I find it fascinating. We get frustrated when God doesn't open a door for us. Um, And yet in this particular case, Paul at one point wanted to go into Asia and the Holy Spirit forbid him. That's when he got the vision from the man from Macedonia. Come over here. And it was in Macedonia most notably in the churches in Philippi, where uh, God used that church not only to supply Paul's ministry needs, but also to give him a platform from which to go anywhere and everywhere he wanted to go. So God was always in the background preparing the table, setting things up for Paul to go into Asia. And later he would write that when he did go, there was a great door of effective ministry that was opened for him by the Lord. And of course, we know that is when his um, missionary journey went into Ephesus, and that would be the place that Paul would stay the longest, uh, a thriving church family in, in Ephesus, and all because the timing had to be right. So I think, Nacho, that God stops us way more often than Satan does. Now, I think because Satan attacks and because he brings doubt and we have a tendency to look at circumstances, I think we get discouraged unnecessarily in the face 
of opposition or in the face of difficulty. But it's not because God is doing that. It's because we simply uh, are, are under attack. By him and we give up. And we just give up. I know I've said this many times on this program, Nacho, but, um, you know, we had so much opposition coming here. Uh, and then even when we got here, uh, the first year, it was like we couldn't, I mean, we couldn't stay afloat. I mean, it was, it was seemingly impossible every single day. It didn't appear like God was doing anything at all. But those are the times when you've simply got to resolve that I'm going to do what God told me to do, where he told me to do it, no matter what. We as Christians, Nacho, we need that kind of resolve. Every single day we get up, Lord, I'm yours. Today is the day. If you want to change my life radically, if you want to do something unique, uh, if you want to do something tiny, something very small that nobody will notice, I'm your servant. What about me, Lord? And what about today? So, Nacho, I think, uh, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Oscar. A friend told me there will still be sin in the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. How can that be true if Jesus is ruling and reigning? Well, Oscar, the, the reason it's going to be true is because there's going to be a whole bunch of people with flesh and blood bodies who go into the millennium, people that survive nations and peoples that survive the Great Tribulation, and they're still going to have their sin nature. So yes, there will still be sin in the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Now, Oscar, it doesn't mean that you or I will still have the capacity to sin because we will be with Jesus, ruling and reigning with him in some capacity the Bible is not clear about, but we will be in our glorified resurrected bodies. You know, we, during the rapture, will exchange flesh for, for that which is, is glorious. Um, Paul says the perishable will be replaced with the imperishable. Uh, so, so we won't have that capacity to sin. So we're actually going to be servants of God, um, again, in a way that the Bible doesn't give any detail on, ruling and reigning with Jesus. But the people that we are serving, the, the multiplied billions, imagine the, the, the multiplied billions on, on a thousand year uh, period of time where the earth is, is redeemed, not perfect yet, but redeemed. Um, with Jesus' perfection and holiness ruling and reigning. And yes, people will rebel and people will be sin. Isaiah says an infant will die at the age of 100 years old. And, and I think the reason that they will die is because uh, they sin and there's judgment. Judgment will be swift and judgment will be sure and in some fashion or form will be involved in that judgment. But yes, there still will be sin. Uh, even more to the point, Oscar, at the end of the thousand years, we're told that the devil is going to be let loose again. He's going to have been bound for the whole thousand years. Imagine how frustrating that will be for Satan. But when he's let loose, he's going to be let loose to deceive the people. All of the people who survived that, that, that thousand year reign of Christ on earth will have had no choice but to serve God. They will have had no choice because Jesus will rule as a potentate. I mean, Jesus isn't going to be here and say, well, do what you think is right, and we'll just kind of work it out. No, he's going to demand holiness. He's going to demand righteousness and justice. And so at the end of the thousand years, when the enemy is let loose, he will deceive 
numbers that are described in biblical terms as greater than the numbers of sand or grains of sand on the seashores. Now, how could we be deceived? How could human beings, after a thousand years of perfect righteous rule, how can we be deceived? Well, the answer is the problem has always been our sin nature. And those who rebelled against God will be cast into the lake of fire at the end of a thousand years. So, yes, there will be. Good news, Oscar. At the end of the thousand years, a new heaven and a new earth is going to be created. Nothing impure will ever enter it. There will be no light necessary because the Lamb is the light. Nothing but beauty and glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, I know a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth sounds like a long time. But compared to eternity, it's just a drop in the bucket. So eternity will be spent not only in the presence of Jesus, but in the presence of perfection, sort of the way God always intended it to be. So, Oscar, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from James. He wants to know... Well, wait a minute. Before I do that, let's go to a phone call. Michael on line one from San Antonio. Michael, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, Pastor Ron, uh, I've called uh, before on uh, this radio program, and I appreciate you um, taking my call. But I have, you know, this could be a little long-winded, but, you know, I have really concerns. I recently, you know, got saved and, you know, I had Jesus come into my heart and my life. And, you know, I was one of the ones, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but I called about being married to a Jehovah's Witness, and you told me to, you know, the, the best thing that I can do is just, you know, lead by example uh, in order to save my marriage. And, you know, right now my wife has her heart is like really hard right now and I don't know if it's going to happen but I think my main concern is because we have an eight-year-old and when I first met her you know I wasn't saved I wasn't anybody that followed any religion so I allowed her at that time to raise my daughter as a witness but now that she's grown and now that I've got saved you know I know that it's terrible you know she's eight years old and sometimes I get strong feelings of anger and brokenheartedness because I feel like they're leading her astray like you know the grandparents the mother the aunts like like I just feel like what they're they've taught her and what she's all the limitations that they put on her like it really hurts me and I just want to know like am I forgiven or am I going to be held accountable for allowing that to happen to her? You know what I mean? And, like, is there anything that I can do if um, we're to split up? You know? Sorry. You know, um, Michael, I, I'm so, my heart just hurts for you, and I do remember your call. We've been praying for you uh, and for your wife, and we won't stop. Um, I understand how difficult the, the, the counsel that I gave you the other day really is. Uh, but when it comes to practical things, two things. Let me let me address your first question. Of course, you're already forgiven. The minute you gave your life to Jesus Christ, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven and forgotten as far as, as east is from west. That's how far your sins are from you. So, yes, you are forgiven. Now you have an opportunity, as I said the other day, to live such with such light that your wife and your daughter see it. Now, I'm gonna, what I'm about to say now is going to be, I'm sure, controversial. But, but I, I believe it with all of my heart. Uh, your, your wife is still your wife. Your daughter is your daughter. It's now time for you to take the spiritual lead in your house. And the way to do that is to say to your wife, I can't make you go to, um, to church with me. 
Um, I, I'm going to keep praying that you do. I can't make you sit and read the Bible with me. Uh, but I'm going to be at, at a certain time every day, whatever works for your schedule. I'm going to be there with my Bible open and, and praying, and, and I'd love to have you join me. But the one thing I can do as the head of this household, even their Bible, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, which is twisted and turned, even their Bible has Ephesians 5.22 in it. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. So here's what you say. I'm going to start taking our daughter to church with me. And uh, give her no choice in the matter. Don't don't let it devolve into a yelling match. But but I, I'm I'm not going to have our daughter um, under the, the the false teachings of the witnesses. I'm not going to have her influenced by your family. Um, I'm going to be a light for the Lord. And me and my daughter are going to find a church, or we're going to go to church together, and and we're we're going to raise her to know the real Jesus Christ. Now, that may force your wife's hand, and she may be getting some counsel uh, that may force her hand to leave you or to insist that you leave, uh, but you deal with that as the time comes. One of the things we want to do is we want your wife to know how important your Jesus is to you. And your Jesus and her Jesus aren't the same Jesuses, so um, the way you, you have to take a stand, and you have every bit as much right uh, to to train your child up in the way she, she should go as your wife does. And the fact that you are come lately to the church, come lately to Christ, none of that matters. Right now, what you've got to do is say, this is about our daughter's eternal destiny, and I have as much right, in fact, the biblical mandate to be the head of my house. So I can't, you're an adult, I can't force you to do anything. But I can make sure my daughter is in church with me. And then you just do that, and you do it as often as you can. Now, if she leaves you, and uh, she becomes the custodial parent, um, uh, I think you fight for custody in a situation like that. It, it's, it's not acceptable to let your daughter just, just be swept away in it. But never stop praying. Now, I'm going to tell you a story, Michael, a very quick one, that I hope gives you a lot of hope. We had this exact situation with the family in our church. And if you ever want to stop by here, I'll let you talk to all three of them. Um, um, a, a young girl raised in the Philippines by her grandmother, who was Jehovah's Witness. That's all she ever heard. Well, when she reunited with her mother and her mother's new husband uh, here in the United States, um, uh, the girl was 13 or 14 years old when she got here. And she was dead set against it. Her heart was broken because she wasn't in the Philippines with her grandma. Uh, she was a Jehovah's Witness, and, and, and she didn't want to hear about Jesus. She was angry. She was sullen. Uh, there just seemed to be no hope, and it caused a lot of friction in the home. Um, just a couple weeks short of this young woman's 18th birthday, this girl gave her life to Jesus Christ. And the light comes in. Her heart is so filled with joy. She, she, she said, thanks for putting up with me. I mean, just she's, she's a completely different person. And the reason she was is because there was a godly husband and her godly mother who are now following Jesus for the first time. Both of them had messed up a bunch of times, but now for the first time they were following Jesus together. And their consistency and their joy and their passion in their relationship with not only the Lord, but with one another finally won the daughter over. 
And this young woman now, I still think of her as a little girl because she was so small when she came here. But, but in less than four years, uh, she has become a born-again Christian whose life just reeks the light of Jesus Christ. So I hope that encourages you. But Michael, take a stand. Uh, not an ugly stand. Don't yell. Don't raise your voice. Remember, you're representing Jesus. But be very, very firm and say, this is the way it's going to be. And if she yes, leaves you, there's nothing you can do. The Bible says if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave or let her leave. In your case, uh, certainly God hates divorce. He doesn't want you to divorce. But he also doesn't want you to be unequally yoked. He doesn't want your daughter to be raised in the false religion. Does that help at all? Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Professor. Ron. I appreciate that. And I, uh, I look forward to meeting you. This will be my first year going to the Joy Jesus. So I, I look forward to that. Oh, bless your heart. Please come and see me, Michael. Yes, sir. And, Thank and you. Remind me, and I'll introduce you to the family because they will be there. Absolutely. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Okay, Michael. God bless. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. See, that's why we invite you guys to join Jesus. Um, you won't believe what you see. You won't. You won't believe how joyfully people are serving. It's the highlight of our calendar year every year. Um, it, it's just an amazing thing to, to to be there. So, Michael, we are praying for you and for your wife and for your daughter. We're inside of five minutes. Let's see what my next question is. James wants to know, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? James, it means only two things. Uh, it doesn't mean we look like God. It doesn't mean that we think like God. It means that we are made with the capacity to choose. We have free will. God chose us and in his image, we have to choose him back. So it means that we're made in the image of God in the, in the capacity that we've been given to choose who we're going to serve. But the other half of this, what it means to be made in the image of God, is equally important. It means that we're all eternal. The minute we're born, the minute we, we become human beings in this world, we're out of the mother's womb, Actually, when we are conceived in the mother's womb, from that moment, we become eternal. We're going to live forever somewhere. And then, of course, there's the element of choice again. We're going to choose where we're going to spend forever. Are we going to spend forever uh, in uh, the presence of God? Or are we going to spend uh, forever separated from the presence of God? One we call heaven, the other that we call hell. So that's all it means. It doesn't mean that, that uh, as it's so often... Um, injuriously declared, you know, well, we're all made in the image of God. God made us gay. God made us this. God made us that. So so God loves us all because we're made in his image. That's not at all what it means. It means that we have eternality, and it also means that we have the capacity and the mandate, I would add, to choose. So that's all it means. It doesn't mean anything else. It doesn't mean that we're basically good at heart. It doesn't mean that um, um, God accepts what we're doing um, wherever we are in our lives. It means that we're all equally precious to God. And God forces us to make a choice where we're going to spend forever, in his presence or out. So, James, I hope that answers your question. 340, we're inside three minutes now for this half of the program. We'd love some more of your live calls in the second half of the program. 340-9585 or 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from 
Let me see this one from Albert. Is there a recommended time frame for engagements or relationships before getting married? Uh, Albert, um, no, not a recommended time. It's different for everybody, whatever works. Now, as a pastor, let me say this. I've never been a fan of long, long engagements. You know, when somebody comes and says, yes, God said this is the one and we're going to get married and we're making plans and we really love each other. Well, when are you going to get married? Three years. That's just never made sense to me. Um, To be in the will of God, if God brought somebody into your life, then then once you know it, then you ought to pursue it. Um, You need time before getting engaged to find out uh, if you're walking in the same direction, if you're if you have the same thoughts uh, and commitment to Jesus Christ, um, to to learn whether you like one another. You know, it's it's easy to love somebody that you find out later that you don't like. So you find out all of those things. But once you've been through that process, Albert, and you decide this is the person I'm going to marry, then I just don't see a whole bunch of value in dragging it on um, for a long period of time. Um, obedience is always for now. And I think that's the best way to do it. Um, you know, we got a young man in our church who is uh, about to to uh, pop the question, and we're having a great time with him, and, and uh, he's all excited and nervous. I'm pretty sure she's going to say yes. Um, but, but, you know, we've been together, and finally when they realize that this is the one, why waste any more time? So, Albert, I hope that helps. Uh, we've got 30 minutes left is all in this week. 340-9585. 340-9585. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and I will be back on the other side of the break in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program our final 30 minutes of the week we'd love your live calls and questions at 340-9585 here's a question from our mobile app from scott he's a pastor on a follow-up on the question about satan stopping us as you pointed out, Paul was stopped more by the Holy Spirit than by Satan. Would that be because when the Holy Spirit intervened, Paul was perhaps doing the wrong thing, and when Satan interfered, Paul was doing the right thing? I find that I get the most attacked spiritually when I'm doing the work of the Lord than when I'm doing my own thing. Well, Scott, I, your conclusion, I think, is a good one. Um, when we're doing our own thing, we are doing Satan's thing. So I think we need to make that distinction. Uh, only when we're in the will of God... Are we sort of insulated from the enemy being able to stop it? No weapon formed against us will prosper. We're told, um, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Uh, but when, when we're doing our own thing, that's when we find ourselves in trouble. So uh, when you're doing the work of the Lord, there's going to be spiritual attacks. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the, 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 the spiritual armor, the armor of God. And we need to put that on. And it's not a formula. Uh, as, as perhaps you've heard me say many times in this program, 
all of the armor is just Paul's way of saying, just be with Jesus. He's the one who does the fighting for you. So expect opposition. Don't get caught off guard by opposition and just persevere. I'm going to do it no matter what, no matter how difficult, no matter how I feel, I'm going to do it. Now, in Paul's case, uh, it wasn't because Paul was doing the wrong thing. He was doing the right thing, to be sure. But he was doing the right thing at the wrong time. You see, that's one of the biggest difficulties that we as Christians have is discerning the time frame of God. Now, personally, Scott, in my life, uh, everything that I do, everything that the Lord says, I assume is right now. And God has a way of slowing me down or speeding me up, and I have to be really sensitive. You know, in my case, Paula is the one most often used by the Lord to slow me down or speed me up. If, if there's something that I'm a little bit unsure about, she's always the first one that I go to. And so if she says yes, that's a green light for us. If she says I'm not sure, well, that's sort of a yellow light. So we kind of slow things down and wait until uh, we can do this in partnership and agreement. If she says no, and I'm trying to think of the times she may have said no, maybe once or twice in all of our years walking with the Lord together, then, then I just realized that that's either not the Lord that I heard or the timing is wrong. So this issue of timing is important. Uh, the desire to go into to Asia Minor was um, um, from the heart of God. And it consumed the Apostle Paul. And a lot of times when we really want to do something that, that God's put on our heart, we sort of push the timetable, but there was a lot of preparation that needed to be done. God was preparing Paul, but he was also preparing the people in Asia Minor. Uh, timing is everything. He was preparing them to hear the message. So it wasn't that he was doing the wrong thing or even his own his own thing. He was doing what God put in his heart to do, but God was governing the timing of it, and of course, then the timing came perfect. I wonder if Paul would have thought, you know, the timing is perfect, when in fact, um, when he showed up in Philippi, uh, he ends up in prison and, um, and, and being beaten. I wonder, I wonder if he would have thought, is that, uh, did I do the right thing, Lord? Did I do the wrong thing? But it was all God's deal. Remember, uh, Scott, he's the author the beginner, and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. All we have to do is be with him. And uh, God was just slowing the Apostle Paul down. Great question. Thank you very, very much. Here is an anonymous caller to the studio. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Tell Pastor Ron, thank you for telling the previous caller to love his wife and daughter. Love works. Well, Michael, you heard that. So uh, love works. It takes some time sometimes. But love works. One other word about this. Um, people in cults, their hearts become rock hard. We have a problem with things that we're invested in. Things that we believe with all of our heart are true. But when she sees the difference in you, Michael and you continue to love her even when she's not loving in her responses to you. I promise you that God will use that. The Holy Spirit's going to be knocking on the door of her heart and God will use that to win her over. 
Here is a question from our email inbox, Anonymous. Uh, you just answered a question about us being made in the image of God. You said it does not mean we think like God. Quick question. When a Calvinist says, well, who are we to question God's definition of love? We can't say God is unloving because he chooses some and not others. Who are we to say what love is? Can we not refute that by saying, well, we're made in his image, so I'm pretty sure our picture of love being compassionate, kind, etc., lines up with what God's view of love is. Sending people to hell at random because he didn't choose them doesn't fit in the picture of what love is. Um, you know, Anonymous, I'm going to be teaching on this very thing. Um, who are you, old man, to talk back to God is, is are going to be the place that we begin this Sunday. So you might want to uh, to watch that on live stream at calvaryessay.com uh, in one of our three services on Sunday. Uh, and of course, we'll archive it by Sunday afternoon. It'll be on our website as well. So I'm going to I'm going to deal with that question uh, very, very clearly. Um, um, what, what we can't do is we can't separate love uh, as declared in the Bible from the nature and the character of God. And, and no matter how you parse it, no matter how um, strongly you choose to hold on to a, a, an incorrect systematic theology, um, you can't make something that is unloving loving and say, well, you know, who are we to question God? Um, to say that we're made in His image means only that we can choose. I told you that that was my response to the question and that we're going to live somewhere forever, so we've got to make that choice. So what we have to do is go to the Bible for the definition of love. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 19, I think. But the fruit of the, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. Uh, that's what love is. Love in the Greek there is singular. And, and the singular there is really, really important. It is 522, by the way. Um, um, this, it's singular. The, the rest of that describes what love is. And that's the love that God wants us to demonstrate. And, and if we even think for a moment that it's, it's conceivable that God cannot be questioned about his motive, but can randomly pick some for heaven and some for hell and then tell everybody to choose it, it distorts who God is so when a Calvinist says who are we to question God's definition of love they misunderstand the question what God is saying who are you oh man to talk back to God he's saying who are you to ask questions like this well then I can sin and, and, and God still loves me or I can do what I want to do instead of what God wants to do. Or if God wanted me to do something, he'd make me do it. That's one of the real, real dangers of, of Calvinistic theology. No, we have to do our part in partnering with God. And so when we ask God questions, it's always okay to ask God questions. It's just never okay to question God. Um... But it's not because we don't have his character, his nature, his perfect holiness, the statements in the Bible that God is love. We know what love is. And that love is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, God's gift to the world. So I hope, Anonymous, that answers your question. Um, 
the, the Calvinist position is just so wrong, it's painful. Uh, that's how wrong it is. Here is a question from Henry. Appropriate timing. Henry says, if we're all children of God, how is it possible we won't all be in heaven together? We see, Henry, that's the problem. We're not all children of God. To be a child of God, it has to be through being born into a family. And since we weren't born into the family of God, that leaves only one option. We have to be adopted into the family of God. You know, we've been going through this in Romans for such a long time uh, now. I, I, I just, I'm delighted that, that God chose me when he didn't have to. You know, I told our church, I said, you know, when you have your own kids, you're stuck with them. You can't just get rid of them. You, you created them. They're yours. But when God, who wasn't stuck with you, chose you, how special is that? So we're not all children of God. To be a child of God, you've got to be a believer. And then we've been given the spirit of adoption. And by him, we can cry, Abba, Father. But, but nobody who is an unbeliever has that ability to say, Abba, Father. That's given to us as a born-again birthright. So when we're adopted by God, that's when we become children of God. The truth is that we're creations of God. We're creations of the process that God used to, to multiply this earth. But that doesn't make us a child. And I know the argument sounds so emotionally satisfying, but we're all children of God. God should accept all of his children. Um, he does accept all of his children, but he, how can he accept those who aren't his child? You know, if I just went out onto the street and picked up a random kid and said, hey, now you're my kid, I'm going to take you home with me, that would be kidnapping. It's a crime. Well, God doesn't kidnap anybody. He created a process by which we are born. That does not mean he created us as he created Adam and Eve by his own finger. So, Henry, heaven is a place where there'll be no impure thing, no unholy thing. There'll be no sin, there'll be no pain. There'll be no depression, no discouragement. There'll be only unbridled joy. If unbelievers would be in heaven just because they're born, well, then that would, by definition, negate what I just told you about heaven. So it's very important that we understand the distinction. Don't fall for the emotional arguments. I became God's child in February of 1991. Until then, I was an enemy of God, hostile to the things of God. King James uses the ugly word enmity. That was established between me and God because I made him my enemy. But it all changed in an instant when I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I asked for forgiveness of my sins. That's when I became a child of God, not before. So I hope that makes sense to you, Henry. Earl wants to know, or wants me to, please explain the difference between real repentance and just being sorry that you did something wrong. Well, Earl, the, the difference between those two things is the difference between heaven and hell. 
That's the difference. Uh, real repentance means that we, we're, 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 we're sorry for what we did, but we're sorry enough to change. Lord, I sinned against you, David, in his famous psalm of repentance, and that's the best place to go whenever you're curious about what real repentance is, Earl. Psalm 51. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. Surely I was sinful uh, when I was conceived, sinful in my mother's womb. Real repentance is owning responsibility for your sins, not blaming anyone else, certainly not blaming God. But real repentance drives you to that place where you make things right with God. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, one of my heroes, because he's a short guy like me. As soon as Jesus said, today, I must come to your house. And Zacchaeus then said, if I've wronged anybody, and he went on this process of, I'll repay them four times what I took from them. He, he, he wanted to get, and, and Jesus looked at him marveling, I think with a big smile on his face. He said, today, salvation has come to this house. You see, that's what real repentance is. It means I've blown it. I've blown it repeatedly. It's my fault and I'm sorry, God, can you forgive me? His answer is yes. And then we change. We don't get perfect, but we change, and we change radically. And we begin walking away from sin and walking with Jesus. That's what real repentance is. It's a U-turn in life. Just being sorry you did something wrong, even if you cry big old tears and boo-hoo really, really loudly and trying to make people feel really guilty that they're still holding unforgiveness against you. It doesn't mean anything. Judas was sorry he got caught. Judas was sorry that his plan didn't work out, but Jesus said he was a son of perdition doomed to destruction before the foundations of the world were laid. Simon the sorcerer was sorry, but he wasn't repentant. And we've got stories over and over and over about men who are sorry, women who are sorry that they messed up, sorry that things didn't work out. But that's not salvation. So Earl, whether you're talking about you or anybody else, real repentance is beautiful to watch. It's easy to see, by the way. And you'll know you're in the presence of somebody who's changed because they met Jesus. And not only have they changed, but their eternal destination has changed. When somebody's just sorry, they'll feel bad for a couple days and then they'll start living life just the way they always did before. And you'll see there's no difference at all. So that's the best I can do, Earl. But it is an important difference for sure. 340-9585 in our last little bit of time left for this week. Here is a question from an anonymous caller. What is the best way for a new believer to start reading the Bible? Um, uh, I say this um, often. Don't uh, I'm not being flippant here at all, but just to turn the pages. Get a Bible and turn the pages. Read it. Not don't, um, especially for new believers. Don't rely on electronic devices. Turn the pages. Get your skin oil on the pages of the Bible. Make it easy to turn those pages instead of, you know, they stick together when you've read the Bible. Just become familiar with it. The best way to begin reading the Bible 
gets to take an overview. Now, I'm not one who advises you start at Genesis and just read through the book. That is laborious for a new believer. And uh, while Genesis is a great story and while Exodus is a great story, pretty soon you're going to get mired down in a bunch of things that don't make any sense to you. So have a an Old Testament book and a New Testament book that you're reading concurrently. Don't don't read anywhere else in the Bible till you're done with those books. And then find another book in the Old Testament and another book in the New Testament and read those. But but find something, um, some time to set aside and just turn the pages, sort of get an overview of all 66 books of your Bible written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And, and you'll, you'll start to grasp how marvelously this book is constructed, so marvelous, in fact, that it could only be written by God. And I think the first thing is to have an awareness, to sort of be in awe of this word. To sort of be in awe of this word. Now, one other thing, Anonymous, that I found out, and I just figured this out by myself, uh, and, and again, when I first got saved, it was a pretty radical transformation, and I couldn't get enough. So here's what I learned. I learned that if I would read 10 chapters a day, um, I could read the Bible twice in a year. Again, I, I, I'm not a fan of going through it from start to finish, but the way I described it earlier, if you read 10 chapters a day, and if a book like Ephesians has only six chapters, you can stop at six. But but if you do that, some, some chapters have only, books only in one chapter. Um, at the end of a book, stop. Now, the books that don't have very many chapters, read them two or three times. But before you move on, just sort of get an idea of what's there. And then after you have that overview, you've got sort of a, a foundation, a base to work from. Then you can start filling in the gaps. That's when you start uh, studying rather than just reading. So that would be my counsel to you, Anonymous. It's, it's what worked for me. Uh, and honestly, I got so excited about the Bible that uh, I just didn't want to do anything else. Uh, it was like every day there was new news. Every day there was great news. Every day the living Lord of the universe had something to say to me. And it became so thrilling that, um, well, obviously it's been my life's work now for uh, more than 26 years. Uh, and, and, and and it all started by me just being curious. I didn't, I had a King James Bible and the these and the thous and, and uh, the, the awkward use of language. It was difficult, but I wanted to wrestle through it. And I sort of accepted it as a challenge. Can I say one other thing? Um, find a place to read where you and Jesus are alone. Don't have your phone by you. Um, don't be interrupted by knocks on the door or whatever else. Uh, go somewhere. I always found it helpful to have a separate place to read. Now, I went to a library, a, a, a school of theology library. It's quiet. Uh, I could sit at a table. It seemed more studious to me. Um, but nobody could distract me. My eyes got tired. I'd stop for a few minutes, get a drink of water, and come back and start all over again. But find a place. It could be an office. It could be a park bench somewhere. Uh, but just somewhere where you can devote all of your energy. 
to hearing from Jesus. That's exactly what he wants to do. So I hope that helps you and keep me posted on how you're doing. 340-9585. What do we, well, we're about under four minutes, so no time really for calls. Uh, here's a question for, for Donald, from Donald, rather. Do you, do you believe that Christians have an obligation to argue with those who deny the Christian faith? We should never argue with anybody. So not only do we not have an obligation, uh, I think we're in our flesh when we argue. So that's not what it means when it says make a defense, to offer a defense, to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Um, it, it means that we share for sure. But but the Christian who's looking for an argument is a Christian who's in the flesh, Donald. It's very important that we understand that. We want to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that even if you know everything, you can fathom all mysteries. If you give everything that you have, just surrender everything to the Lord. If you can do miraculous things, but you don't have love, that you're just a noisemaker. And there's too much noise in our world now, Donald, so don't argue. Don't argue with people. Just share this very special person that you've met, Jesus Christ. Share what he's done for you. You know, one of the neat things that you find about the testimonies given in the Bible, Paul didn't get up and start arguing with people. Now, they argued with him often. But he didn't argue with people. Peter didn't argue with people. They just shared what Jesus has done for them. That's the value of testimonies. Paul shares his testimony three separate times in the book of Acts. And I, I think that's just the Lord's way of letting us know that he shared his testimony everywhere he went. Nobody can argue with you about your testimony. When we find ourselves embroiled in discussions about doctrine, um, um, about things really that don't matter, then I think we're in a place where we want to win an argument instead of winning a soul. And as the caller that we had that thanked me for talking about love mentioned, it's love that wins people over. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Not your fine argument, not my persuasive talk. But it's love. And that's what the world is missing. I hate to sound like an old Motown song. But what the world needs now is love. <laughs> it always has. It always will. And when we're arguing with somebody, we're hardly loving them. So it's very, very important, Donald, to share your heart in love. The minute you find yourself in an argument... That ought to be your cue to identify your flesh. If people want to argue with you, just keep telling them how much God loves them. And when they stop listening, you stop talking. But don't argue with people. No, we don't have an obligation to argue. We have an obligation to share what the Lord has done. Hey, thank you, Donald. I appreciate the call. Um, thank you for a great week. A lot of really, really interesting questions. Uh, you've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. As you go to church, remember, offer your body to God as a living sacrifice. I promise you, He'll use you. May the bless you and keep you. I'll see you Monday. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 
The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Hallelujah.